Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. This week I want to talk about odd things that have been found on the North American continent. Things that shouldn't be there, but are. There's not really much explanation on these items. It's kind of a matter of faith, I think, whether you believe they're real or not. The Kensington Runestone is a 202-pound slab of gray whack covered in runes on its face and side. A Swedish immigrant, Olaf Oman, reported that he discovered it in 1898 in a largely rural township of Solom, Douglas County, Minnesota, and named it after the nearest settlement of Kensington. The inscription purports to be a record left behind by Scandinavian explorers in the 14th century as it was dated in the text to the year 1362. There has been a drawn-out debate on the stone's authenticity, but the scholarly consensus has classified it as a 19th century hoax since it was first examined in 1910, with some critics directly charging the purported discoverer Omen with fabricating the inscription. Nevertheless, there remains a community convinced of the stone's authenticity. Swedish immigrant Olaf Omen said that he found the stone late in 1898 while clearing land he had recently acquired of trees and stumps before plowing. The stone was said to be near the crest of a small knoll rising above the wetlands, lying face down and tangled in the root system of a stunted poplar tree, estimated to be from less than 10 to about 40 years old. The artifact is about 30 by 16 by 6 inches and weighs around 202 pounds. Omen's 10-year-old son, Edward Omen, noticed some markings and the farmer later said that he thought they found an Indian, meaning early American, almanac. During this period, the journey of Leif Erikson to Vinland, which was their version of North America, was being widely discussed and there was renewed interest in the Vikings throughout Scandinavia, stirred by the National Romanticism movement. 
Five years earlier, Norway had participated in the world's Columbian exhibition by sending the Viking, which was a replica of the Gokstad ship, to Chicago. There was also friction between Sweden and Norway, which ultimately led to Norway's independence from Sweden in 1905. Some Norwegians claimed the stone was a Swedish hoax, and there were similar Swedish accusations because the stone references a joint expedition of Norwegians and Swedes. It is thought to be more than coincidental that the stone was found among Scandinavian newcomers in Minnesota, still struggling for acceptance and quite proud of their Nordic heritage. A copy of the inscription made its way to the University of Minnesota. Olaus Breda, a professor of Scandinavian languages and literature in the Scandinavian department, declared the stone to be a forgery and published a discrediting article which appeared in Simra during 1910. Breda also forwarded copies of the inscription to fellow linguists and historians in Scandinavia, such as Olaf Rieg, Sophus Bug, Gustav Storm, Magnus Olsen, and Adolf Noreen. They unanimously pronounced the Kensington inscription a fraud and forgery of recent date. The stone was then sent to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Scholars either dismissed it as a prank or felt unable to identify a sustainable historical context, and the stone was returned to Omen. Hjalmar Holand, a Norwegian-American historian and author, claimed Omen gave him the stone. But the Minnesota Historical Society has a bill of sale showing Omen sold them the stone for $10 in 1911. Holand renewed public interest with an article enthusiastically summarizing studies that were made by geologist Newton Horace Winchell of the Minnesota Historical Society and linguist George Flom of the Philological Society of the University of Illinois, who both published opinions in 1910. According to Winchell, the tree under which the stone was found had been destroyed before 1910. Several nearby poplars that witnesses estimated to be about the same size were cut down and by counting their rings, it was determined they were around 30 to 40 years old. One member of the team who had excavated at the fine site in 1899, County School Superintendent Cleve Van Dyke, later recalled the trees being only 10 or 12 years old at the time. The surrounding county had not been settled until 1858, and settlement was severely restricted for a time by the Dakota War of 1862. Although it was reported that the best land in the township adjacent to Solom, home city, was already taken by 1867 by a mixture of Swedish, Norwegian, and Yankee settlers. Winchell estimated that the inscription was roughly 500 years old by comparing its weathering with the weathering on the backside, which he assumed was glacial and 8,000 years old. He stated that the chisel marks were fresh, more recently, geologist Harold Evans has also noted that, quote, the inscription is about as sharp as the day it was carved. The letters are smooth, showing virtually no weathering. 
Winchell also mentions in the same report that Professor W.O. Hotchkiss, state geologist of Wisconsin, estimated that the runes were at least 50 to 100 years old. Meanwhile, Flom found a strong apparent divergence between the runes used in the Kensington inscription and those in use during the 14th century. Similarly, the language of the inscription was modern compared to the Nordic languages of the 14th century. The translation of the writing goes like this. Eight Goderlanders and 22 Northmen on this acquisition journey from Vinland far to the west. We had a camp by two shelters one day's journey north from this stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, found ten men red from blood and dead. Ave Maria, saved from evil. And then on the side of the stone says, There are ten men by the inland sea to look after our ships, fourteen days' journey from this peninsula or island. Year 1362. Another translation has it this way. Eight Geats, or what we would call Goths, and 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland to the west. We had camped by two skerries one day's journey north from this stone. We were out to fish one day. After we came home, we found ten men red from blood and dead. AVM, which is a shortened version of Ave Virgo Maria, save us from evil. We have ten men by the sea to look after our ships, fourteen days' travel from this island, in the year 1362. Both of those translations are up for interpretation in some cases. Holand took the stone to Europe, and while newspapers in Minnesota carried articles hotly debating its authenticity, the stone was quickly dismissed by Swedish linguists. Over the next 40 years, Holand struggled to sway public and scholarly opinion about the runestone, writing articles and several books. He achieved brief success in 1949 when the stone was put on display at the Smithsonian Institution, and scholars such as William Falbitzer and S.N. Hagen published papers supporting its authenticity. At nearly the same time, Scandinavian linguist Sven Jansen, Eric Moltke, Harry Anderson, and K.M. Nielsen, along with a popular book by Eric Walgren, again questioned the runestone's authenticity. Along with Walgren, historian Theodore Blegen flatly asserted Omen had carved the artifact as a prank, possibly with help from others in the Kensington area. Further resolution seemed to come with the 1976 published transcript of an interview of Frank Walter Gran, conducted by Paul Carson Jr. on August 13, 1967, that had been recorded on audio tape. In it, Gran said his father John confessed in 1927 that Omen made the inscription. John Gran's story, however, was based on secondhand anecdotes he had heard about Omen, and although it was presented as a dying declaration, Grand lived for several more years, saying nothing more about the stone. 
The possibility of the runestone being an authentic 14th century artifact was again raised in 1982 by Robert Hall, who is an emeritus professor of Italian language and literature at Cornell, who published a book and a follow-up in 1994 questioning the methodology of its critics. Hall asserted that the odd philological problems in the runestone could be the result of normal dialectal variances in Old Swedish of the period. He further contended that critics had failed to consider the physical evidence, which he found leaning heavily in favor of authenticity. In his book, The Vikings in America, written in 1986, Walgren again stated that the text bore linguistic abnormalities and spellings that he thought suggested the runestone was a forgery. The Kensington runestone is on display at the Runestone Museum in Alexandria, Minnesota. Another odd object is called the main penny, but it's also referred to as the Goddard coin. It's a Norwegian silver coin dating to the reign of Olaf Kyrig, king of Norway from 1067 to 1093 AD. It was discovered in Maine in 1957, and it has been suggested as evidence of pre-Columbian, that means prior to Columbus, pre-Columbian transoceanic contact. Guy Melgren, a local resident and amateur archaeologist, said he found this coin on August 18, 1957 at the Goddard site. This was an extensive archaeological site at an old early American settlement at Naskeague Point on Penobscot Bay in Brooklyn, Maine. A 1978 article in Time called the discovery site an ancient Indian rubbish heap near the coastal town of Blue Hill. Over a lengthy period, a collection of 30,000 items from the site was donated to the Maine State Museum. The coin was donated in 1974. Much of the circumstances of the finding of the coin were not well preserved in the record, as was the case with the majority of the 30,000 finds. The coin was at first misidentified as a British penny from the 12th century. In 1978, experts from London considered that it might be of Norse origin. Today, the identity of the main penny as an Olaf Kier silver coin is not in doubt. Kolbjorn Skar of the University of Oslo determined the coin had been minted between 1065 and 1080 AD and widely circulated in the 12th and 13th centuries. The penny was found with a perforation, probably for use as a pendant. This area of the coin has since crumbled to dust from corrosion. The Goddard site has been dated to 1180 to 1235 within the circulation period of pennies of this type. The people who lived at the site at that time are generally considered to be ancestors of the Penobscot Indians. While the date is around 200 years after the last of the Vinland voyages, which happened around 1000 AD, described in Norse sagas, it is well within the period during which the Norse lived in Greenland from the 10th to the 15th centuries and could have visited North America. The Penny's coastal origin has been offered as evidence either that the Norsemen from Greenland traveled farther south in Newfoundland or that the coin might have been traded locally. 
but the penny was the only Norse artifact found at the site, which, according to substantial evidence, was a hub in a large native trade network. For example, a single artifact generally identified as a Dorset Eskimo Burren was also recovered there and may support the idea that both the Burren and the Penny could plausibly have come to Maine through native trade channels from Norse sources in Labrador or Newfoundland. The Maine State Museum website favors the view that the coin was found at the site and is therefore evidence of Norse presence on the North American continent. Although the museum states that, quote, the most likely explanation for the coin's presence is that it was obtained by natives somewhere else, perhaps in Newfoundland, where the only known New World Norse settlement has been found at Lance O' Meadows, and that it eventually reached the Goddard site through native trade channels, unquote. The Maine State Museum describes it as the only pre-Columbian Norse artifact generally regarded as genuine found within the United States. However, the possibility that it may be a hoax has been raised. Notably, this Norwegian silver coin and other similar coins of that era were available on the open market during 1957. Thus, Melgren could have had the means and the opportunity to plant the coin at the site. Or he could have been deceived by someone planting the coin though it is unclear what the motive would have been. There are enough questions regarding the provenance of the coin to leave its archaeological significance unclear. An assessment of the validity of the find by anthropologist Edmund Snow Carpenter concluded not proven. The American Numismatic Society has stated that, quote, there is no reliable confirmation on the documentation of the Goddard coin and much circumstantial evidence suggests that someone was deliberately trying to manipulate or obfuscate the situation. The Norse coin from Maine should probably be considered a hoax." Unquote. That sounds like a definite maybe to me. A November 2017 paper by Norwegian numismatist Svein Goldbeck suggests that the coin is a genuine find. What do you think? I, I don't know. I don't know what to think. The Lost Lunas Decalogue Stone. Do you know what the Decalogue is? It's the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue Stone is a large boulder on the side of Hidden Mountain near Lost Lunas, New Mexico, about 35 miles south of Albuquerque. I'm sorry, Albuquerque. And it bears a very regular inscription carved into a flat panel of the stone. The stone is also known as the Los Lunas Mystery Stone, or the Commandment Rock. The stone is controversial in that some claim the inscription is pre-Columbian, again before Columbus, and therefore proof of early Semitic contact with the Americas. The first recorded mention of the stone is in 1933, when the late professor Frank Hibben, an archaeologist from the University of New Mexico, saw it. According to a 1996 interview, Hibben was convinced the inscription was ancient and thus authentic. He reported that he first saw the text in 1933. At the time, it was covered with lichen and patination and was hardly visible. He claimed he was taken to the site by a guide 
who claimed he had seen it as a boy back in the 1880s. Unquote. Hibben's testimony is tainted by charges that, in at least two separate incidents, he fabricated some or all of his archaeological data to support his pre-Clovis migration theory. The reported 1880s date of discovery is important to those who believe that the stone is pre-Columbian. However, the Paleo-Hebrew script, which is closely related to the Phoenician script, was well known by at least 1870, thus not precluding the possibility of a modern hoax. Why can't these people just accept that something may have happened? You know, everything's a hoax. Everything's a hoax. Because of the stone's weight of over 80 tons, it was never moved to a museum or laboratory for study and safekeeping. Many visitors have cleaned the stone inscriptions over the years, and that very likely destroyed any possibility for scientific analysis of the inscription's patina. Nevertheless, comparing it with the modern inscription nearby, geologist George Morehouse, a colleague of Barry Feld, estimated that the inscription could be between 500 and 2,000 years old and explaining its freshness and lack of patina as being due to frequent scrubbing to make it more visible. In April of 2006, the first line of the unprotected inscription was obliterated by vandals. Archaeolinguist Cyrus Gordon has proposed that the Los Lunas Decalogue is a Samaritan mezuzah. The familiar Jewish mezuzah is a tiny scroll placed in a small container mounted by the entrance to a house. The ancient Samaritan mezuzah, on the other hand, was commonly a large stone slab placed by the gateway to a property or synagogue and bearing an abridged version of the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. On historical and epigraphic grounds, Gordon regards the Byzantine period as the most likely for the inscription. The Samaritan alphabet is a direct descendant of the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. One argument against the stone's antiquity is its apparent use of modern Hebrew or otherwise atypical punctuation. Though amateur epigrapher Barry Fell, and I, I go back and restate, he is an amateur epigrapher, argued that the punctuation is consistent with antiquity. Other researchers dismiss the inscription based on the numerous stylistic and grammatical errors that appear in the inscription. According to archaeologist Kenneth Fetter, the stone is almost certainly a fake, he says. He points out that the flat face of the stone shows a very sharp, crisp inscription. His main concern, however, is the lack of any archaeological context. He argues that to get to the location of the stone would have required that whoever inscribed it to have stopped along the way, camped, eaten food, broken things, disposed of trash, and performed rituals, and so on. And those actions should have left a trail of physical archaeological evidence across the greater American Southwest, discovery of which would undeniably prove the existence of foreigners in New Mexico in antiquity with a demonstrably ancient Hebrew material culture. And he further states that there are no pre-Columbian ancient Hebrew settlements. 
No sites containing the everyday detritus of a band of ancient Hebrews. Nothing that even a cursory knowledge of how the archaeological record forms would demand there would be. From an archaeological standpoint, that's plainly impossible. Experts, always ready to pounce on others' beliefs when it suits them. British archaeologist Keith Fitzpatrick Matthews has concluded that, viewed dispassionately, the Los Lunas inscription is a clear but well-constructed forgery for its day. Despite the claims of high antiquity, there are features of the text, such as the mixing of letter forms between two separate alphabets, that are much more likely to derive from the work of a modern forger than from an ancient Hebrew or Samaritan scribe. The evidence for its origin is poor. But a comparison with the Bat Creek Stone suggests that it was a Mormon forgery. The Mormon Battalion, which was part of the U.S. Army during the Mexican War, is known to have marched from Santa Fe down the Rio Grande Valley, passing close by, and it is possible that this is the date of the inscription. The Los Lunas Decalogue Stone is often grouped with the Heavener Rune Stone, the Kensington Runestone, the Dighton Rock, and the Newport Tower as examples of American landmarks with disputed provenances. Other disputed American Hebrew inscriptions include the Smithsonian Institution's Bat Creek Inscription and the Newark, Ohio Decalogue Stone, the Keystone, and the Johnson Bradner Stone. Visitors to the site are curiously required to purchase a $35 recreational access permit from the New Mexico State Land Office. Hmm. In the late 1960s, American detective author Earl Stanley Gardner stood before a collection of over 30,000 figurines. He had heard about this collection many years ago and felt a deep sense of astonishment when seeing it in person at this modest house in the small rural town of Acambaro in the state of Guanajuato, Mexico. Gardner, the writer who came up with great titles like The Case of the Black Cat and Granny Get Your Gun, and who created such memorable Characters as Perry Mason, Della Street, and Lester Leith had a real-life mystery in front of him. The figurines were fantastic and seemingly out of place. Many of them featured people of various races and some 10% of them looked like our modern depictions of dinosaurs. These dinosaurs were sometimes accompanied by humans. Some of the figures had dinosaurs wrestling with people, or men even riding the dinosaurs. Of course, dinosaur representations in ancient art were unheard of because humans did not coexist with these prehistoric creatures. The creator of Perry Mason, who was considered to be the best-selling American author at the time of his death, was asked to examine the collection by a friend the Harvard-educated anthropologist Charles Hapgood, who was one of the many voices chiming in on this controversy at the time. Hapgood knew that Gardner's love of sleuthing did not just apply to fiction writing, and Gardner's many years as a trial attorney would be helpful 
in solving the mystery of these anomalous figurines. Over the years, the massive collection had been proclaimed to be an elaborate hoax by people in the more traditional fields of science and has been shunned by most mainstream archaeologists. While many have thought that the whole discussion was put to rest years ago, the Akambaro figures have begun to generate interest once again among fringe scientists, Christian young earth proponents, believers in alternative universe theories, and those who follow the new chronology writings of Russian Anatoly Fomenko, which claim that written history itself has been adjusted over time to fit the agendas of the elites. Gotta love those Russians, they're always busting on the elites. Some investigators in more traditional scientific fields have also been recently drawn to these figures once again, as a controversy has become debated online. The figures, which for many years have literally and figuratively been crated up and have not been available for examination, are now on display for all to see at the Waldemar Jules Rood Museum in Akambaro, Guanajuato. The story of the Akambaro figurines begins in 1945. A German merchant named Waldemar Julesrud was riding his horse along the edges of a mountain called El Toro just outside of town. In a dried out riverbed he noticed an unusual part of a clay figurine sticking out of the dirt. He began digging and found a number of curious figures near the riverbed. Julesrud was already familiar with pre-Columbian ceramics as he had one of the largest collections of artifacts from the pre-classic Chupacuaro culture then amassed. While he wasn't selling hardware, he was digging up or acquiring pieces for his collection and over the years Julesrud became quite the amateur archaeologist. He had never seen the types of figures that he had uncovered at the base of El Toro so he asked one of his employees named Odilon Tinajero if he could find more of these figurines for him. Jules Rude would pay Tinajero one peso for each figurine brought to him intact or with pieces that were easily put together. Thus began his collection and over a five to six year period Jules Rude gathered over 35,000 of these strange figurines. In 1947, when Jules Rood published a booklet on his discoveries called Enigmas del Pasado, or Enigmas of the Past, the figurines began to receive international attention. In March of 1951, Lowell Harmer, a veteran writer for the Los Angeles Times, published an article titled, Mexico Finds Give Hint of Lost World. Dinosaur statues point to men who lived in the age of reptiles. Harmer had visited Akambaro earlier that year and described the sheer volume of the collection in Jules Rude's house and he wrote that the figurines fill the floors, the tables, the wall cabinets to overflowing. The Times writer also wondered in his article how could it be a hoax not even in Mexico where money is so scarce could anyone afford the labor of these thousands of statues at the low prices Jules Rood is paying. While seemingly convinced of the collection's authenticity, as an objective writer, Harmer finished off his article by saying, 
I am a writer, not an archaeologist. It will be up to the experts to decide. In the next few years, the story was picked up by the tabloid press and made it to the magazine specializing in stories of the fanciful and bizarre. One article of note appeared in the February-March 1952 issue of Fate magazine titled, Did Man Tame the Dinosaur?, which was a clear reference to some of the figurines showing men roping and riding the creatures. The following year, in 1953, the Mexican government got involved in the Yacambaro mystery. It sent four archaeologists from the Instituto Nacional de Antropología y Historia in Mexico City to investigate. They set up a dig site about a mile from Jules Rude's original discovery location near the base of the mountain called El Toro. They dug a test pit going about two meters down and discovered dozens of figurines similar to Jules Rude's, including dinosaurs. The Instituto then issued a statement that the figurines did correspond to the pre-classic civilization of the Chupacuaro and could date as early as 800 BC, but not the dinosaur ones. The scientists concluded that even though the dinosaurs were found among other similar figurines in the same archaeological strata, they couldn't possibly be anything but modern productions as human interaction with dinosaurs was impossible. The Instituto did no further excavations and after the 1950s refused to issue permits for other archaeologists to make new excavations. On the American side of the border, an anthropological organization dedicated to preserving early American culture, the Amerind Foundation, sent archaeologist Charles de Peso down to examine the figurines. De Peso published his findings in volume 18 of the scientific journal American Antiquity in the year 1953 and in the prestigious archaeology magazine the same year. Those who do not believe the figurines to be part of a hoax have pointed out that De Peso went down to Mexico with a clear bias to expose the figures as fakes and that he did not approach the problem with the figurines with an open mind. Although having the backing of the scientific establishment, De Peso did make claims that should be scrutinized more closely. For example, in his American Antiquity article, De Peso states, None of the specimens were marred by patination, nor did they possess the surface coating of soluble salts. The figures were broken, in most cases, where the appendages attached themselves to the body of the figurines. No parts were missing. Furthermore, none of the broken surfaces were worn smooth. In the entire collection of 32,000 specimens, no shovel, mattock, or pick marks were noted. He also stated, further investigation revealed that a family living in the vicinity of Akambaro make these figurines during the winter months when their fields are idle. In his writing, De Peso alleged that after the figures were made that they were planted in certain locations and in his American Antiquity article, he tells a tale of a botched excavation in which he witnessed figurines coming up out of a hole mixed with fresh backfill and even fresh manure. In the end of his article, De Peso states, Thus the investigation ended. It seems almost superfluous 
to state that the Akambaro figurines are not prehistoric, nor were they made by a prehistoric race who lived in association with Mesozoic reptiles. It was not long before DePeso's articles and claims were shot full of holes. For one, DePeso only spent two days in Akambaro and only spent four hours examining Jules Rude's collection in his home. DePeso did not set up and conduct an excavation of his own. He did not take into consideration that Jules Rude's collection included near-perfect figurines purchased from villagers as per Jules Rude's own request. When he began his collection, Jules Rude specified that he would pay one peso for each intact figure. There were plenty of pieces and broken figures that did not make it to the over 30,000 in Jules Rude's home. The De Peso articles caught the eye of Charles Hapgood, the Harvard-trained archaeologist and friend of Earl Stanley Gardner, and Hapgood had years of experience and the academic credentials to analyze the Jules Rude collection, and in 1954 he spent a considerable amount of time in Akambaro. Hapgood refuted most of De Peso's claims point by point. De Peso claimed that there were no missing pieces. Hopgood found boxes and boxes of parts that could not be put together. De Peso claimed that there was no discoloring or encrusted dirt on the figures. Hapgood observed that dirt and patination were evidence on the figures in spite of Jewel Rude's requirement for cleaned, intact figurines to earn the one peso reward. De Peso alleged that there were no pick marks from shoveling on any of the figurines. Hapgood documented the opposite. One of the big elements of the hoax proposed by DePeso was his observation that one of the excavations he witnessed was bringing up fresh dirt from a recent backfill. Hapgood had an answer for this too. In documenting the excavation procedure, Hapgood wrote, an important point that came out was when the digger stopped work in the middle of excavating a cache, he filled in the hole to protect it from the many small boys of the neighborhood. This may have a bearing on the accusations of fraud. The final point dispelled by Hapgood was that the villagers were making the figurines during their off time in the winter. The sheer number of figurines, both intact and partial, would take many families an incredible amount of time to produce. In the next decade, Gardner would add to this sentiment in his 1969 book about Akambaro called The Host with the Big Hat. He writes, I don't believe it would have been at all possible for any group of people to have made these figurines, to have paid for the burrow load of wood necessary to fire them, take them out and bury them, wait for the ground to resume its natural hardness, which would take from one to ten years, and then discover these figurines and dig them up, all for a gross price of 12 cents for, per figure. Gardner also concluded, it is absolutely positively out of the question to think that these artifacts which we saw could have been planted. As a scientist, Charles Hapgood knew of the need for concrete dating of the pieces using the most up-to-date methods. In 1968, he submitted three samples to Isotopes Incorporated of New Jersey for radiocarbon dating. The first sample came back as 3,590 years old, 
plus or minus 100 years. The second sample came up 6,480 years old, plus or minus 170 years. The third sample came up with a date of 3,060 years old, plus or minus 120 years. To be thorough, Hapgood also submitted four samples to the University of Pennsylvania Museum for thermoluminescent dating, a more accurate way to date pottery. All four samples came up with the date of 2500 BC, plus or minus 190 years. Dr. Freilich Rainey, realizing the importance of accuracy in the dating of these pieces, did 18 runs on each of the four samples and came up with the same results. The last attempt to date the figures occurred in 1976. Gary Caravo and Mark Hahn also used the thermoluminescent dating technique on 20 of the figurines. All of the samples failed the plateau test, which indicated that dates obtained from these figurines using high temperature thermoluminescent dating were not reliable and lacked significance. Based on the signal regeneration found in some of the samples, the Caravo Han team estimated that the figurines were fired sometime in the late 1930s, early 1940s. So, are these dinosaur figurines authentic archaeological finds of great importance, or are they part of an elaborate hoax? One must ask, if this were a hoax, who would benefit from it? Waldemar Jules Rude made no money from the sales of the figures or from tourism connected to his collection. No archaeologists have made names or reputations for themselves because of the dinosaurs of Acambaro. The Mexican government wants to ignore these figures and prohibits any excavations in the area. Why do they not want more investigation into these figures? Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, 
and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.